2: On Monster Talk, we frequently talk about imaginary monsters, or creatures of folklore. But today, we will be discussing a real creature that preys on humans and our closest animal companions. It is often invisible, it drinks blood to survive, and it is responsible for many of the sightings credited to a Chupacabra. Many of you will cringe and recoil in horror when you learn the true facts behind the creature known as Sarcoptes scabii.
0: It's actually
2: quite
3: unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Larkness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster.
0: Monster Talk.
2: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Dr. Karen Stolzno, blogger, linguist, and paranormal researcher, and Benjamin Radford, science journalist and managing editor of Skeptical Inquirer, we fish for the chunky pieces of science in the steaming bowl of soup that is monster folklore. Today, we find some especially meaty pieces as we get under the skin of the chupacabra legend and find out more about the lice that cause the often reported hairless canids the media seems to love so much. It's okay to scratch, but don't skip this episode. Once you get past the disgust factor, there is some amazing science going on in acrology, and it is fascinating stuff.
0: Monster Talk.
2: So I noticed the other day that we've actually been doing Monster Talk for a full year now. It, uh, it's, it's kind of fantastic.
0: So, Happy excellent. birthday to us.
2: Yaha. So this is the first opportunity we've had to get together uh, actually, we had an opportunity to be together, but nobody noticed it was the one-year anniversary while we were there.
0: What it, date it, marks the anniversary? Or, um,
2: um, it was about, uh, I guess, a couple of days before we actually went live with episode one, which would have been in July of uh, 2009. So wow. the specific date, I'll look it up, and then we can put that on our webpage.
0: All right, so we're well over one now.
2: Yeah, yeah, so...
1: Uh, And, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, uh, haven't we recently uh, achieved a milestone in terms of uh, listeners?
2: Yep, we've crossed the 10,000 subscribers uh, milestone. So it was very close, very close uh, to my one-year goal. I don't know what my goal is for year two. Um, I'd like to get a Nobel Prize winner on. How about that? Can it be an Ig Nobel or does it have to be a (laughs) Nobel? Either one would do in my book. I would, you know...
0: Yeah, if we're going to have doctors and believers, then we'll have to have both.
2: <laughs> I'd love to get an Ig Nobel Prize myself. Just, I haven't really. Published.
0: You're well on the way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to do something real sciencey. Uh, it just has to be crazy. So. Sciencey. Real sciencey. Ig I'll, I'll, I'll leave that off the show. We'll, we'll talk about that offline. <laughs> my plan is to get an ignoble prize. So it's got
0: something to do with mites. It has something do
2: it. No, it's something to do with bones. <laughs> I think that, I think there's something to do with Bigfoot bones. And
0: Bigfoot. All right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so uh, there's that. So what's today's topic, Dr. Atlantis? Today's topic. We're going to be talking about a real monster. One that you can actually encounter in the woods uh, near your home. If you live in North America and probably uh, all over the world, as a matter of fact. Uh, this is, a, of course, um, a blood-sucking creature that looks very strange.
0: It's not a chupacabra?
2: <gasps> no, but it is directly related to... a vampire? To... No, it's not a vampire either. These are all good guesses. No, today we're going to talk about lice.
0: <laughs> lice. <laughs> I'm itchy already.
2: Lice and mites. Uh, we're going to talk about the creatures that cause the hairless canines that we see on the media so frequently that people attribute to being chupacabras. So uh, we're going to be talking to Dr. Barry O'Connor, who is an evolutionary parasitologist, and he actually specializes in mites, including the kinds that cause mange. Um, and mange is probably the most common cause for the hairless condition we see in, let's call them media chupacabra candidates. Or ben you, 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 you <laughs> ben, you uh, may have some other shorthand for them. I'm not sure. I,
1: have, I, I usually call them uh, temporary chupacabras. Te-
2: oh, I like that, temporary yeah. chupacabras. Mm, nice. <laughs>
1: nice. <laughs> What's that in Spanish, Ben? Uh, chupacabras temporalidades. Oh, I like that. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds very 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 romantic. <laughs> so, <laughs> ¿Dónde
2: está la chupacabra or el chupacabra? It would probably be L, but, yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So what are
0: some of the other causes if we're not talking mites and mange?
2: Apparently there's a breed of dog that's naturally hairless, or or not a dog. What is the, uh, well, maybe it is a dog. The Zolo's a dog, sure. Yeah, the Zolo's a dog. And um, then there's those hairless, uh, there was the Red uh, Wolf-Coyote hybrid they found. And that was also hairless, but I'm not really sure if that was a genetic condition um, or if that was parasitism here.
0: The hairless cats as well.
2: Yeah, there are. There are.
1: There's, of course, also alopecia.
0: That's
2: true. What's he got to do with it? No. (laughs) (laughs) Alopecia.
1: He makes great pizza (laughs) down in Chicago. Uh,
0: I
2: thought uh, he was Irish.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that's a different one. That's his brother. We were talking about alopecia. We
2: were. I had a friend in college who had alopecia, and uh, it was completely hairless.
0: It doesn't always result in complete loss of hair, though.
1: No, it does not. It can
0: be patches of hair loss. I know that's common with some thyroid conditions.
1: That's right, and temporary usually.
0: Can be.
2: I was just listening to the science show from Australia, and they had a uh, a bit with uh, Sir David Attenborough talking about uh, sort of what are eyebrows for, and it was uh, interesting because he talked about how that uh, pattern baldness is uh, obviously. A trait that's not being uh, prevented by evolution, I guess. So, being having hair on your head late in life doesn't appear to be an important evolutionary trait, one way or the other. But eyebrows rarely go away, and so they're, they're, he was looking at why
1: uh, we have eyebrows. It's very interesting. What about, what, what about Whoopi Goldberg? I don't know. Does she not have eyebrows? I I don't. I've never seen eyebrows on that woman.
0: Women pluck them for fashion reasons.
1: Completely, like, like Whoopi.
0: Well, I think, not usually completely, but some get tattoos. So That's if they overpluck them and then they don't grow back, then they end up getting them tattooed on, which I don't think looks very good. That it's not very creepy. convincing.
1: <laughs> no, no. <it's, laughs> wow. Okay, is, is there a, I mean, it wouldn't be a Merkin. What would it be for, for the eyebrows? What would it be for the, what? <laughs> I said it wouldn't. It, it wouldn't be a merkin, which I know that you two are familiar with. But would it, what would it be for eyebrows? What would it be for eyebrows? Uh, a, a, fo- <laughs> a, a toupee for the eyebrows. Oh, I see. Oh, <laughs> come on, work with me here, folks. Uh, uh, what uh, would a
2: toupee uh, for the eyebrows be? No, it would definitely not be a merkin. <laughs>
1: We do have two, two uh, Merkins on the show today. When in one, uh, you Aussies. know
2: what? No, that's a good word, and, and instead of defining it, let's let people look it up because it's there we go. Yes, if you're over eighteen, feel free to look up Merkin.
0: We're very high here. To do with eyebrow, yeah, high brow, eyebrows.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's rather low brow. If you follow me, uh, oh, <laughs> I've been vegan. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I like I say, like, like Karen just said. I think most people just um, you know paint them on or. Yeah. Well, you
0: pencil them in. Or pencil something. them,
2: and me, I just keep trimming mine before they take over and become my new top of hat. I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got like you
0: got a monobrow
2: <laughs> It's no, no, not, not even it, it wants to like crawl over the top of my head. It's like I feel like I'm, I'm going I could be the skeptical Stanton Friedman, and that's saying something. What? <laughs> mm. <laughs> because that man's got some eyebrows. Yeah. I don't know if they're alien, but they're they're very powerful.
1: Speaking of nits and mites, I may be mistaken. but I think that the the phrase "nitpicking," if I'm not mistaken, it comes from uh, the the baby, the eggs uh, of of mites and lice, which uh, which you know you, you can find in, in, uh, in children's hair and heads and whatnot. And that's where the idea of nitpicking, you know, looking for little tiny details, is. People would would of course pick uh, pick you know these eggs and lice out of out of uh, like children's hair, for example.
0: Yeah, like chimpanzees.
2: I, I wasn't sure. I thought it just referred to the lice themselves, but I know monkeys, as part of their grooming, like to pick mm. the lice off. And uh, I, I'm not sure if they're eating it. I assume they are, you know, or at least crushing it with their teeth. And what else it, would they do with them? Well, they could just kill them. With, I mean, you, you know, collect them. Yeah. Well, like dogs, like dogs bite the like fleas or put them on eBay. Well, I don't think <laughs> if monkeys they look like Jesus eBay actually. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else they would do. With them. I'm just saying that you, you know, I, I guess they could throw. Them. Well, I, I don't know. Okay, just never mind. Fine, whatever. Yeah, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I'm just asking. They could have been pinching them or squishing them. I don't know. You know those. those I think in,
0: that's the point, isn't it? A bonding thing.
2: Well, I think the point is just to get the nits off of you. You know, I mean,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and bond.
2: I mean, yeah. I think the bonding's evolved as an important social behavior among primates. Um, you know, and I know when my wife combs my back hair and looks for nits, I really appreciate it.
1: it 's <laughs> very sweet.
0: Leave that in.
2: And what do, what do you do love. for her in return? Um, I, I have high serotonin levels and I make loud noises, um, that make her feel, uh, part of the
1: pack. And you
0: paint on her eyebrows. Troops,
1: part of the troop. We're primates. So <laughs> that's so romantic. <laughs> Your wife's a lucky, lucky woman, Blake.
2: Everyone's laughing and their tin hats are falling off. What? <laughs> no, that's probably the least gross thing we'll talk about today, honestly, is my back.
0: Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm off, really. I get freaked out about this sort no, of No, no,
2: mites are disgusting. I, mites and lice. Uh, and Well, they're me- things
0: you can't see. I mean, it's Howard Hughes, isn't it?
2: Well, <laughs> it, well you can certainly sense when you're actually infected, and, and uh, I... I, I'm not going to talk about what I know. I let, let's let the expert talk about it. But from my familiarity with the topic,
0: have we got personal stories of infestations? No,
2: no, no. I, well, no, not personally. You, I, you know, <laughs> we were public schools here in in, in the South, and uh, I imagine this is true nationwide. But every now and then, a school will get a lice outbreak, and then the next thing you know, you're putting on the special shampoo for your kids or shaving your yeah. kids' heads.
0: <laughs> there, there's a <laughs> the lot voice. of uh,
2: there's a lot of I mean that means you know actually taking baths and all kinds of uh, breaks to the normal routine around here.
0: <laughs> I had them once when I was um, about eight years old. There was an outbreak in school, and having long hair, they uh, spread very quickly. So I remember hmm. having the, the special bath.
1: Yeah, they dip you in like Achilles or something, or.
0: No, um, I just remember mum washing my hair and having to comb them out and comb the eggs out and dead creatures and wasn't very pleasant.
2: Wow. So you can imagine how uncomfortable it would be for wildlife. I, I know my one of my first yeah. uh, big skeptical investigations that I did for anybody besides myself was looking into the Jacobs uh, creature, which was a uh, bear photo. Well, okay, it was a photo of an animal in Pennsylvania a couple of years ago. And um, the bear experts said it was a mangy bear, but the Bigfoot uh, uh, aficionados or enthusiasts believed it was probably some sort of uh, primate. And, and it, it really, to me, it highlighted one of the big issues with uh, unusual photos of, uh, of animals, especially mammals. And that's that uh, in support of the evolutionary theory, right, we look a lot alike when we don't have hair. All of us, all these little animals look quite similar. And and even like at a skeletal level, if you have a carcass, uh, you know, if you're not an expert, it can be hard to tell from a partial skeleton what an animal is. Um, And in this case, you know, you had a big animal. uh, You had lots of pictures of bears and then these strange photos that look kind of like a bear, maybe something else. Uh, Some people thought they looked nothing like a bear. And... In part of that, I was looking at uh, you know, why was mange affecting these animals. So I did a lot of research on mange at the time. And uh, it's just pretty prevalent. I think it was you, Ben, that came up with the idea that, or at least first brought to my attention the idea that we'll probably be seeing more mangey animals because with milder winters, uh, they'll be able to survive uh, the winter better. So mm. we might be seeing more of these kind of strange-looking animals. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure if that's true because now we've had some harsh winters again. I don't know. But,
1: um. Yeah, I, I had, I, I, I researched, uh, mange a fair amount for my, my chupacabra book, uh, coming out early next year. And I ended up tracking down mange experts and, and, you know, getting some really interesting information that, uh, that a lot of people apparently just had no, particularly the, the, the chupacabra proponents, or at least the, the, the temporary chupacabra proponents. Um, really sort of didn't seem to have a clue about. So uh, this will be interesting.
2: I don't want to dominate the conversation, but I, I'll tell you one other thing that I, I noticed that I had a, um, I don't want to call it a bias. I had some kind of a idea that maybe the reason these animals were being um, misidentified, when I looked at these animals, I saw hairless animals, I saw hairless dogs, I, you know, hairless anything seems to make people think monster for some reason. I, this is I thought, not typical. Right, they are they are atypical, but uh, you know that that they're not a different species just because they don't have hair necessarily, right? So whatever they are, and it, I thought it was unusual. I thought maybe the problem was that these are animals that are being spotted by people from urban areas, and they're just not familiar with what wildlife looks like. And I thought, well, that makes good sense. I and I, I got this idea in my head that maybe it would be like the. Uh, you know the city folk you know <laughs> problem that city folk don't know how to identify animals but it turns out a lot of these animals are being identified by people from rural areas um the woman from Texas who had the uh, hairless dogs in her yard uh, what's her name again ben the uh, woman who rides around on the tractor um, Phyllis Canyon Phyllis Canyon thank you I, I, it was just, I, Quero, I would, Texas. yeah so Phyllis Canyon for example she she she's a rancher You know she's familiar with what animals are out there, so that was wrong. That that was it's not a country folk, city folk, urban, rural problem. It's just a classical inability to identify an animal that looks different from what you expect. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think that same kind of mistake is probably behind. And I'm going to say Bigfoot. Some of the Bigfoot sightings where people see a a bear that's not behaving like a normal bear or looks somewhat different or is standing on its hind legs. And they don't see a bear, you know. They see something unusual that's not what they expect, and they're sure—if they don't know what it is—but they're sure it's not a bear.
0: Yeah, I guess it's not encountering an animal uh, in that sort of form. So that's all that is. It's not not going to be a common thing. I mean, how common is this? I guess we'll find out today. For yeah. Creatures yeah. to be affected by, by mites and mange, and I'm still itching.
2: Just thinking of it. <laughs> yeah. Just the thoughts of it.
0: Don't don't you guys? No. Well, you
2: know...
1: I just got groomed, though. <laughs> you, you just you just had your back waxed. That's right. You know, Not that I, I'm uh,
0: needing a grooming.
1: Well, you know, the, there's definitely a, a psychosomatic element to it. Not that anyone's imagining it, but, you know, if you if you start thinking about bugs and creepy crawlies and weird weird things in the bed, uh, it's oh, very, yeah. very easy to to sort of, you know, convince a, yourself.
0: There was a study, I don't know if it was in Scientific American, but it was about the psychological nature of... Of itching, oh, we will have to track down the study if you want to mention it. Point to point people to it. Yeah. Um. But it was how there is definitely a psychological element to it.
1: Surely. Well, speaking of that, let me let me throw in a plug for an an excellent horror film that came out a couple of years back uh, called Bug. Uh, <laughs> it was directed by William Friedkin. Most people probably know him for uh, The Exorcist, although. I think his best film is a is a film called Sorcerer, uh, which came out a couple years back, badly overlooked. But but Bug um, it stars um, Ashley Judd, and uh, and it's uh, it's a fascinating, it's very very realistic from a psychological point of view uh, depiction of uh, how people can sort of believe that they're being infested, and sort of you have uh, what the, what the French call folie à deux, uh, in which you know you have two people who are Sharing a belief system and it's sort of a, a mild form of mass hysteria, so it's a it's, or it's a withdrawal it's, symptom, right? Yeah, <laughs> it, you never know. But it, yeah. it is a it is a good uh, scary film, and it's it's very, very again, it's very realistic from a from a psychological point of view.
2: You talk about fully Adieu in your your book, uh, scientific paranormal investigation, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And I was just thinking, is that is that similar to a shared delusion? Like, does that cover cases like where, uh, one I, that I remember recently where a woman thought she was, uh, a divine? I don't remember if she thought she was Jesus reincarnated or something, but her husband was going along with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, does that cover that kind of case?
1: Yeah, it, it's very similar to that. What, what you find is that you have uh, one. It's not just. It, it's it's often uh, just two people, but it can actually be larger groups. Um, usually, you know, a handful, maybe no more than a dozen or so. But usually, it's just uh, two or three people, and um, usually they're related by by blood or, or marriage um, uh, or you know close relationship. Or and, both. Or, <laughs> or, yeah. Right. T- t- <laughs> if, if you're in Georgia, who knows. Uh, or in Sydney, but um, <laughs> but uh, but that that's usually the, the the circumstances, and so one person will will get the idea that they have you know that they're they're afflicted by something. Uh, they they, are, they either have some something bothering them, or they have some sort of special ability, or so they're having some unusual unique experience. And it's it's always something that is it's really. On the borderline between clearly true and clearly not true. I mean, that is, you know, if a person claims that, you know, that they're being attacked by, you know, a, a bigfoot, then obviously that's not true. But if a person believes they're being attacked by something that's small or invisible or hard to detect, then that, then to certainly another person uh, who who will begin to buy into that, uh, that could be very uh, believable. Monster doll.
2: Today we're calling Dr. Barry O'Connor. Uh, evolutionary parasitologist who specializes in mites. And you're also a medical veterinary acarologist?
3: Acarologist, right. That's a person who studies mites and ticks.
2: Excellent. Alright, well, we're calling today because, uh, well, mo- mostly because we want to talk about mites, mange, lice, and scabies and parasites. And the tie-in to monsters is that, um, Uh, A lot of times these hairless animals, uh, like uh, dogs and uh, coyotes, are being found and and called a monster. Uh, And and it turns out that later that they've actually got a condition called mange. So can you tell our listeners what mange is exactly?
3: Well, mange is a skin condition, uh, and we usually use the word when we're talking about animals rather than, than people, uh, people get the, uh, in some cases, the same kinds of, of uh, mite parasites can attack both people and animals, but in uh, uh, humans, we don't call it mange. Uh, in animals, generally what happens is you get rather large populations of, of mites. Um, that's not generally the case in humans, although there, there are variants on the human condition that, that uh, resemble what happens with uh, with mange in animals? Uh, but what happens is you get lots of mites burrowing in the skin, and this is the normal thing that they do. Uh, that is their their life cycle, and that elicits an immune response on the part of the of the host, either a human or an animal, and that usually takes the form of inflammation that can lead to thickening of the skin uh the mites will often be burrowing in just the upper layer of the skin but that will become quite thickened that will cause uh blood loss to the hair follicles and so the the hair actually will fall out and uh this can be either very generalized over the whole body or just in 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 parts um and uh, oftentimes in in particularly bad cases you will you will have uh Secondary bacterial infections of of the skin that that will give the uh, the suffering animal a uh, very bad odor, and uh, in many cases this this can be fatal uh, in in animals.
0: What's the name for human mange then, or does that take different forms? Well,
3: well, actually the the bite that we're talking about that's causing uh, most of these cases of complete hair loss and you know this chupacabra syndrome, uh, if you want to call it that. Uh, is a mite called Sarcoptes scabii. And in humans, the uh, the medical condition is called scabies. It's a rather common skin disorder. Uh, it does tend to run in uh, all kind of epidemics in that uh, you will have uh, high incidence of scabies in a particular population. And then as as most of those individuals recover, because in, in humans, it's generally a self-limiting condition. Your, your immune system will ultimately uh, kill off the mites. Um, and when it does that, then uh, pretty much you're going to be immune to uh, reinfection for the rest of your life. And so when a, a, uh, basically a population grows up who's never been exposed to the mite and then the mite gets brought into that population, it can spread easily through the susceptible individuals Who will then, you know, recover ultimately and be immune and then the, uh, you know, the epidemic will, uh, will be over in that, uh, in that area. The same thing happens. I mean, the the same mite can cause and is one of the main causes of mange in, in mammals, you know, both domestic and uh, in some wild mammals. One of the things that um, uh, we've done here is, is to, you know, do some morphological work um, showing that the, Sarcoptes mite on humans uh, is the same mite that's on animals. Uh, This had been previously uh, hypothesized back in the 1960s, but using modern methods, we have verified that that is the case. Um and what appears to have happened is that as humans domesticated, uh, animals, this mite, which is really ancestrally a human parasite. I did some work, uh, many years ago, and this was followed up by some work, uh, um, done by a student of mine, uh, uh, Hans Klumpen, who's now down at, uh, Ohio State University, uh, showing that, uh, Sarcoptes mite, uh, actually has been with, uh, our species, that is the humans, um, you know, from, from the outset. Uh, the closest relatives of this mite occur on our closest relatives, uh, and on back through the primate lineage. So it looks like the uh, Sarcoptes mites and their relatives have evolved with the primates. And then when we get the people, uh, you know, because, and because the mites are transmitted by direct contact, they, they really can't live uh, too long uh, away from a host. And so, um, you know, as soon as people started uh, having close contact with uh, animals, especially uh, the livestock as we domesticated those species, uh, with dogs particularly, um, the mite was able to transfer uh, over onto those species. And as is generally the case, whenever you have, uh, you know, what you can consider a new uh, host parasite association, it's pretty nasty. Uh, We call it highly virulent. Uh, it does a lot of damage, um, and um, uh, mortality can be relatively high because it's a new situation. That, you know, that host species has not had any evolutionary history with that parasite, so it has not been able to evolve any defenses, you know, like we have, okay, because it's been sort of our might uh, all along, and, you know, we have, uh, you know, what we say co-evolved with it so that uh, in humans, uh, skia, normal scabies is an annoyance, okay, it makes you itch, but like I said, it's, it's, uh, self-limiting, it will go away, and, you know, you're not, uh, the worst for, for wear. Whereas in, in animals, you will get these, you know, enormous populations. Uh, what's happened, um, uh, subsequent to the transfer from humans onto domestic animals is that apparently the dogs, um, then have taken it out into, uh, populations of their relatives the wild canids like coyotes and and foxes and wolves and they get it and uh, they get it really bad uh, and then some of them have even taken it further uh, into uh, other mammal populations uh, there's a particularly bad condition in Australia with uh, the sarcoptes mite, uh killing off uh, wombats Uh, which they presumably got the mic from the dingoes who, you know, got them from the domestic dogs who got them from us. I've seen cases of
0: that before. It looks really nasty.
1: (laughs) But what is the typical pattern for hair loss in animals um, with advanced stages of mange? And I've seen quite a few of them in in researching the chupacabra, but um, some of them seem to be completely hairless. Other ones just seem to have some crest on the back. Can you can you sort of give us a typical pattern for that?
3: Well, I don't know if you can say there is a typical pattern for for sarcoptic mange. Um, I've I've done a little more work with some some related mites that that uh, parasitize rodents. They're in the same family uh, as as sarcoptes. Uh, there's one we have here in uh, squirrels, and the squirrel mange is very uh, characteristic because the hair loss is almost always restricted to the the anterior part of the body. So. so and not even the entire head, so it's sort of from the top of the head back to sort of mid body and then kind of down to the elbows, um, and the rest of the body tends to remain you know completely furred and you know of course, there are exceptions to this, but that's that 's the common pattern that you see with uh, with squirrel mange. Some of the others you know will normally attack just around the ears there 's mice that attacks cats um, cats don 't seem to be. All that susceptible to uh, sarcoptic mange. They do get it, but it's pretty rare. Uh, there's another mite uh, called Notoedres. That um, Notoedres cati is the species uh, that attacks um, uh, cats and also uh it's apparently transferred from cats to rabbits because it will parasitize rabbits and it also occurs in the wild in the old world tropics on um, uh civets and mongooses and things like that okay and and uh uh that one really likes the feet and and the um uh, again the face uh where you you get this thickening of the skin again and and some hair loss but you don't typically see the the kind of generalized uh, hair loss that you see with uh, sarcoptes in in dogs.
2: And what actually determines whether or not mange develops? Does every uh, case of this kind of parasite potentially cause mange, or how does that work? Yes,
3: yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, when when you get the mite on uh, on its normal host, which in the case of sarcoptes would would be a human, um, and on humans, uh, the normal place where the mites actually burrow into the skin is. Uh, on the extremities, so very typically on, on the hands, okay, occasionally the feet, um, sometimes the genitalia, so uh, scabies can be a sexually transmitted disease. And because humans aren't very well furred, you know, we, we don't notice any, you know, any kind of hair loss because we didn't have much to begin with. They They don't tend to attack... Um, on the on the head, there is a condition in humans that's called crusted scabies that really is, does kind of mimic what goes on in these bad cases of, of uh, sarcoptic mange in animals, uh, because. A normal case of scabies in humans, the, the population size of the mites is oh, anywhere from 20 to 30 mites, and which isn't very many. But in the uh, cases of so-called crusted scabies, you will get hundreds of thousands of mites and you know, maybe even millions of mites that can you know, spread all over the body. And, uh, with that condition, you get this, uh, thickening of the skin and all the things that go along with, uh, with the the condition we see in, uh, uh, in, in wild, well, sorry, in in other mammal species. For a long time, people wondered about this crested scabies condition and thought, well, maybe it's a different, different kind of mite. But now we know that it's actually exactly the same mite. Uh, it's just that the people are different. Um, the people who get this crested scabies condition um, have uh, compromised immune systems. So it's it's most common in uh, in the elderly. Uh, it's common in uh, uh, AIDS patients and in uh, people who have had uh, organ transplants and have had immunosuppressive therapy and. One of the, uh, the, the key tests of the fact that it really is the same mite is that uh, in a medical setting, when, when um, uh, people with crested scabies are being treated, very often the uh, physicians and nurses that are treating them uh, will come down with a case of normal scabies if they hadn't been previously exposed.
0: Barry, I wanted to ask you a question. It might be a silly question, uh, but is there a connection between chicken pox and scabies at all, or do people confuse uh, the appearance of the two?
3: Well, um, I, I, there's there's no connection. Chicken pox is caused by a virus, but you know, in, in both cases, the you know the initial uh, lesion that you will see on the skin is going to be a, a, a you know a, a reddish uh, raised uh, you know uh, papule that will be very itchy. Um, And, you know, all of that comes uh, as a a result of the immune response. Um, And and in one case, it's a response to the virus in the skin. And on the other, it's a response to the antigens that are are present in in the mites.
0: So there's a similarity in the appearance then?
3: Right. Mm Maybe these mites are actually going to be literally burrowing in the skin. And they they make Mm -hmm. little burrows that run parallel to the surface of the skin, uh, one of the classic diagnostic methods for uh, you know for for diagnosing scabies in the absence of actually seeing a mite uh, is to put some uh, uh, ink on the skin around the the lesion and and then you know let it soak in and then and then wipe it off the surface and okay. ink will be actually taken up into the burrow and you will see these little lines then on the skin that mark the the uh, the, the path that the mite has taken. I, I just wanted to say gross.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. You.
3: <laughs> well, if you, if you want, I can tell you about one one of the grossest <laughs> pictures I ever saw at a scientific meeting. Uh,
0: <laughs> that's saying something Please, coming from ahead. you.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't don't deny our listeners after that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're ready. <laughs>
3: well, no. I I, I went to a, a conference many years ago where the the topic was you know mites of, of human medical importance, and and a physician was was giving a presentation on uh sexual transmission of scabies, and the only uh photograph that he showed, which was sort of behind him on the screen uh for for the entire ten minutes of his talk was was this uh human penis with a scabie's mic burrow going up it okay uh, and of course oh. it was it was you know like ten feet tall and and anyway uh, <laughs> uh,
1: nice good times. Yes, right. <laughs>
0: use that for the show notes hey
1: (laughs) there you go see if you can find that (laughs) make sure we get (laughs) a copy of that
2: right judy was boring hello then judy discovered jumbacasino.com
3: it's my little escape
2: now judy's the life of the party
3: oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon
2: whoa
1: take it easy judy Understand. That's our yeah.
2: whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and
1: WagOn. On! Is, is mange uh, sometimes fatal or is it really a secondary infection?
3: Well, um, it, it's hard to say, you know, one way or another with, with uh, animal mange. Again, one of the, the things about this, you know, history aspect, uh, you know, the, the mite having... Really, had a long period of coevolution with humans, and then when we look at animal uh, mange, um, dogs appear to have, have had it longer than some of the other species. Uh, dogs and pigs, perhaps, uh, because they uh, both suffer from it, but you know it's it's uh, not necessarily fatal in in dogs and and pigs, and and they can often um actually fight it off uh, as opposed to, to dying from it but then when you get out into the wild mammal populations it's almost invariably fatal and uh you know it can really do very serious damage to uh, the wild populations uh years ago when i was a graduate student in uh, at Cornell University in in New York uh, back in the in the uh, 1970s there was a major uh what we call an epizootic uh of sarcoptic mange in the red foxes there. And uh the mortality was, was you know, between ninety eight and ninety nine percent. So it it almost drove the foxes to extinction. And and there was even talk among the wildlife biologists in the state of actually trying to trap the few remaining ones and, and you know, kill them and, and then just go find some foxes somewhere else and reintroduce, you know, basically completely mange-free animals. Uh, I don't think they did that. Um, But, uh, you know, like I say, it it does tend to run in epizootics, and and it did take, you know, some time for the population of of hosts to, uh, you know, to to rebound from, you know, from that attack.
2: Why is it that mange is sometimes fatal? Uh,
3: Well, you know, I, I, I can't tell you whether it's the, you know, the infection or just the, the hyperimmune response um you know the fact that, that all the body's energy is going towards uh you know fighting off these invaders and um you know animals that uh that have mange are clearly weakened by it um, during during an epizootic of squirrel mange that that um, uh... we had again back when I was in graduate school um and this is something i personally observed but it's also been reported in the uh in the literature of Literally uh, squirrels falling from the trees, uh, you know, because they have succumbed, uh, or they're just unable to. You know, they're so weak they can't they can't hold on. And I even did a, a kind of an, an informal little bit of data collecting uh, that that I never published because it wasn't <laughs> it, it wasn't that rigorous. But um, you know, just just going out and looking at at roadkill. Uh, and uh, then comparing the incidence of uh, of obvious mange conditions in the dead squirrels that I would find on the road uh, and compared that with uh, the incidence that I could observe in live squirrels just by, you know, walking around town. And, you know, the incidence um, in in the dead squirrels was, was considerably higher than it was that I could observe in the live ones, which, you know, suggested that, uh, you know, if you were suffering from mange, you, you weren't, as able to dodge cars uh, as well as, as if you were completely healthy.
2: <laughs> that makes
3: sense.
0: <laughs> Barry, could you possibly tell us about the life cycle of the mange-causing parasite?
3: Well, again, if we're, ta- we're talking about sarcophagia scabii, uh, they, they start as an egg, so the females lay eggs in their burrows, and uh, uh, what hatches from the egg is, is a stage, what we call the larva. Uh, in the mites, uh, the larvae actually, you know, mites are arachnids, okay, like spiders and, and scorpions, and so uh, arachnids are different from insects in that they have uh, four pairs of legs instead of three, right, and they don't they have antennae. Uh, well, the, the mites and ticks, the, the acarids as we call them, are uh, almost unique among all the arachnids in that the first life stage that hatches from the egg uh, has only three pairs of legs, okay? So it's like an insect in that respect. Uh, they haven't got their last pair of legs yet, and so we distinguish that stage by calling it the larva. And um, uh, so the larva will live for, uh, you know, some some uh, uh, couple of days or so, and then they will molt to uh, what we call the nymphal stage uh, or the nymph. Uh, nymphs get their last pair of, of legs, okay? So now they have eight legs. Um, the mange mites have uh, two nymphal stages. Uh, we call them the proto-nymph, or the first nymph, um, and then the tritonymph or third nymph, and you will ask me what happened to the second one. Um, the free-living ancestors of uh, a very large group of parasitic mites that includes these mange mites have a, a specialized dutonymph or 2nd nymph that serves to disperse the species, and when these or the ancestral species became a full-time parasite, they didn't need this special dispersing form anymore, so they just don't do it anymore. We can tell morphologically that the the second nymphal stage is the tritonymph um, in in the the parasitic mites. So after that, then they become adult uh, males and females look rather different. They do have. Uh, Uh, Direct mating, so the males and females have to get together. And after mating, the the females are capable of laying eggs then, starting the cycle over again.
2: So the the whole set of nymphs, are they nymphomangiacs?
3: (laughs) I have never heard that. I'll have to write that down and give you credit for it. Okay, thanks.
1: (laughs) I think you mean blame. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: How is mange diagnosed? Is this sort of thing that a layperson can just sort of look at it and say, "Well, it doesn't have any hair; it must be mange," or is it something that really requires well, a no, closer inspection?
3: Well, no. I mean, no, I mean, the conclusive diagnosis is is uh, you know you have to see the mite, and and so you know if, if we're talking about uh, a domestic dog or 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 you know a cow or a, or a pig, uh, you know a veterinarian would do a, a scraping of the skin. Uh, generally, this is done with the uh, you know the, the the back side of a scalpel, you know, and not the sharp side because you don't want to cut into the skin. You just want to kind of scrape the skin, uh, put that material then in you know in, into some uh, uh, usually uh, just mineral oil or something, and look at it on a microscope slide. And you know then if you see the mites, well you have a a positive diagnosis. I mean uh, there, there's you know there are other things that that can cause hair loss. Um, the the general term for hair loss is alopecia. And, um, you know, there's, again, a lot of causes for that, so it's not necessarily going to be a mite. And also, there's something I noticed with, uh, in in looking at the squirrel mange, is that many of the, the animals that I looked at um, again, these were, these were roadkill. kill. Uh, I couldn't find mites on them, and yet they showed the the very characteristic pattern of, of hair loss that, that I described for you. And so it looks like what happened there was that those individuals had, in fact, been able to clear the infection, that their immune system had, had killed off all the mites, but they didn't grow their hair back uh, immediately, and because uh, the hair loss tended to occur in the fall of the year uh... these animals would be sort of half-naked all winter long and again that would would seriously weaken them um, and the normal pattern of molting in squirrels you know would would have them then uh... grow their new you know spring summer coat uh... in the in the springtime and if they did survive and get rid of the mites they would grow a new you know a new coat in the springtime and, you know, they would look fully furred again, uh, and not, not really show any, uh, any signs of the mange. But, you know, the, the fur, I remember looking, the, the first few squirrels I looked at, there, there weren't any mites there. And I was, you know, wondering about, you know, what could be causing this. Uh, but then I started to actually find them, you know, where I could, uh, you know, I could actually find the mites, and that was that.
2: Are most parasites, uh, their host species specific? Is that correct?
3: Well, I would say most of them are, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of them that aren't. Um, and uh, uh, the the sarcoptic mange mite or, or scabies mite is one of those that, you know, if, if humans had, had, you know, never become humans and, and never uh, domesticated other species, uh, that might probably would not have ever, you know, had the opportunity to get onto and establish itself on, on some other host. Uh, the few cases, again, this, this code goes back to um, Hans Klompen's evolutionary work that he did with these. He was able to show that host switches in the entire family psychopathy uh, are, are fairly rare, uh, but he could point to several cases of, of clear uh, host switches where, you know, closely related mite species don't occur on closely related hosts. And since the... Uh, the most of the species in in the mage family, sarcoptidae, are parasites on bat. You know, there's a few cases where species have moved from one of the major groups of bats onto the other one. And there's some cases where they've moved from uh, bats onto... Uh, rodents that live in the trees. So the squirrel mange mite, which now really lives only on squirrels, has an ancestry that, that goes back to, uh, to bat hosts. And there, there's a few that are on uh, uh, mice and rats as well, but these, these um, are often uh, found on arboreal species. I
2: read a few years ago about the relationship between gorilla lice and human genital lice. And uh-huh. I was wondering, right. what, what can the genetics of parasites Tell us about the evolution of the host animals.
3: Well, there's a there's a long, interesting history in, in parasitology about uh, you know what what we call coevolutionary patterns. And, and you know, if, if you go back a hundred years, uh, it was uh, generally thought that you know every parasite was host specific, and that every parasite had sort of evolved with its host. Okay, and and so you could use then. Uh, the pattern of uh, relationships among the parasites uh, had to be sort of a mirror if you will of of the relationships among the hosts, well, now we know that you know life is is never so you know, so uncomplicated and pretty. you know what we call host shifting or or, or column of new hosts uh, does occur uh, you know regularly, and so what we actually see when we look at these patterns is is kind of uh, historical associations like the scabies mite and humans. Um, and then uh, relatively newer associations that are the result of colonization, okay, so like the scabies mite on, on dogs, okay, or the, the squirrel mite, again, coming from uh, or having its closest relatives, uh, you know, not on other rodents, but on, on bats.
0: Getting back to mange, how prevalent is mange? Is there any place on Earth where mange or lice uh, do not exist?
3: Oh goodness! Uh, well, probably um, anywhere where people are and where dogs are, you know, you're you're going to find the the parasites. Um, you know, the the uh, human scabies does occur in in every human population. Like I say, it kind of comes and goes in in these waves or or epizootics in a particular place. So, you know, I remember oh, when was it in the uh, there was a, a big epidemic in many parts of the world back in the late 1960s, early 1970s. So there were a lot of case reports, uh, you know, and made it into the newspapers. Um, and, you know, then again, it kind of faded away, as as it does. Uh, but that doesn't mean it, it, you know, it went extinct. It just, uh, you know, went into other populations where uh, not necessarily urban populations. I had a colleague who was working in, in uh, Madagascar and, and uh, you know, had, had come back and came to see me and showed me... Uh, <laughs> showed me a spot on his hand and said you know is this what I think it is and and I said well probably why do you think so and he said well because one of the local people I was working with had scabies and well anyway uh, (laughs) there was some handshaking going on and you know, and, and he had become infected.
1: You, we've talked some about the, the physical signs of mange, like the hair loss and whatever else. Are there certain behavior characteristics um, that are typical of, of mangey animals? For example, uh, anything that they they do that would be a, a side effect of the mange that wouldn't be, you know, a physical, you know, uh, that wouldn't be obvious in physical appearance
3: well they're going to clearly be itchy you know they will they will scratch a lot because you know the 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 mites do irritate them uh probably in the in the more advanced stages that's going to be less apparent just because the animals are going to be basically too weak uh you know to to do a lot of scratching mm-hmm. um you know they they will uh I, again in, in looking at, at some of these uh chupacabra accounts, um, you know, of, of the attacking of livestock and, and the like, because these animals are, are greatly weakened, um, you know, they're they're gonna have a hard time hunting, and because we're talking about carnivores here that the the dog family primarily that they may be sort of forced into you know attacking livestock because they're they're easier than than running down a a rabbit or or a a deer or something
2: Mm -hmm. can you tell us what your thoughts are about the media's interpretation of this what seems like a common phenomenon
3: well you know again it's it's the the combination of of Myth meets, you know, meets reality, uh, and, you know, as, as is often the case when myth meets reality, there, there is a rational explanation for, uh, you know, for, for what people are seeing. If the myth is coming out of, uh, a population who's ignorant of the, uh, of the medical condition or, or whatever, I mean, it's, uh, you know, similar to, oh, you know, different, uh, you know, human anomalies that, that, you know, get, I mean, genetic, uh, uh, diseases and things that, that have physical manifestations that are you know often interpreted in in some cultures in you know in some sort of mythic way um, but it's you know I, I have you know I, I did check you know a lot of the pictures that are are floating around on the internet uh, of chupacabras uh, and uh, aside from the, the obvious paintings and drawings of, of monsters coming from the imagination uh, anything that looked like a real animal uh, sure looked like a mangy coyote or,
0: or a, a dog or a fox to me. And uh, just going back to... Sorry, did you have a question, Blake? Or?
2: Well, I have lots of questions. We keep going, though. <laughs> oh,
0: well, I was going to move back uh, to scabies again, unless you wanted to... And
2: who doesn't to want to talk about scabies? I, I... Yeah,
3: yeah.
0: I, I didn't think I'd ever be asking questions like this. Let's go back to scabies for uh, a moment. Are you, are
3: you all itching about now? I mean, I usually have... I that am. People who I am, nice and, and I wanted to them.
0: ask you about that. I read a study a number of years ago in a science magazine about... The sort of psychosomatic aspects of itching and talking about this topic. What do you know Mm -hmm. about that?
3: (laughs) Well, I I laugh because there have been so many, you know, sort of personal experiences with things like this. Um, Does it affect you? you, One of the the things I learned early on is to sort of avoid shop talk in a restaurant. Uh, (laughs) Probably a good idea. Yeah, Yeah. I was at a parasitology meeting once and you know, was having dinner with some colleagues and just talking about things we normally talk about, and all of a sudden, kind of looking up and seeing there was no one else left in the restaurant. Uh, <laughs> you know, we were, we were not actually asked to leave or anything, but um, it's just sort of second nature to you know those of us in the in the business. But uh, clearly, is you know is is very troublesome to a lot of people.
0: Does it affect you or not anymore? You just well,
3: it you know, I've been at this for you know 30 years or so, and and have have never actually had scabies myself. You know, don't don't look forward to the day when I you know when I might. When uh, <laughs> uh, you, well, you might—that's excellent. Oh, uh, yeah. Right. All right okay. Uh-huh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was going to do that, and I get to save it. Yeah.
3: <laughs> It'd be
0: lice. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I mean,
3: there's there's a there's a lot you know a lot of the 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 head lice, and you know we've been through that with kids and all this. Uh, I mean, that's a completely different story. But and and there are you know there are other mites that that do bother people and not causing mange or or scabies-like conditions, but, but they just bite. And I deal with a lot of that. Um, and then we get this condition that's that's called um, uh, delusional parasitosis where, you know, people have the feeling that, that things are, you know, on their skin or, or biting them uh, that they can't see. And because if they can't see it, it must be too small and therefore it must be a mite. Uh, then I get a lot of questions from the public that you know again the first thing i I have to tell people is you know i'm i 'm not a medical doctor, and you know i, I can 't diagnose. Uh, a condition that if they can actually show me a specimen that, that's a mite, then I can identify it. And and in cases where they can, then we can usually, based on what it is, figure out what the source is. Um, you know, for example, there are parasitic mites that live in the nests of uh, birds and um, uh, small mammals, you know, rats and, and mice. And, uh, you know, if the nest is in the house or around the house and if uh, uh, especially if if it 's a bird nest and the young birds have left the nest, um, the mites will come in the house and bite people and those are the easy ones because you know people will bring in you know this mite and I can say oh yes that's that 's uh, derminus 's gal that 's a mite that comes in bird nests, and you just have to find the bird nest and remove it, and that 'll take care of your problem uh, you know but it 's when they come in with you know boxes full of hair and and um, you know pieces of paper covered with scotch tape that they 've rubbed all over their body and, and uh or, you know, plastic bags inside plastic bags inside plastic bags. Uh, it's an item uh, you know, with a tiny insect part in the last bag. Uh, you know, these are people who have kind of let the feeling kind of take control of their lives. And there are websites, you know, that I can refer people to that discuss this. I always um, uh, you know, people are always saying i I'm not crazy, you know, or do you think I'm crazy, okay, and I don't think they're crazy, of course not they're they're obviously having uh you know some sort of sensation, and you know the 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 uh idea is to try to find out what is the source of the sensation and and I try to tell them that there's many things other than, you know, a mite or a small insect biting them that could be causing those sensations and that they certainly need to see, uh, you know, a, a, a dermatologist, right, who can literally, you know, could diagnose scabies or, or something like that. Um, but, you know, I try to tell people that it's a, a very common uh a phenomenon. I mean, I do introduce them to the idea of delusional parasitosis and, and uh, in an offhand sort of way, not by jumping back and saying, you're crazy, that's the last thing I ever want to do, um, but to tell them that uh, um, there's possible, you know, psychosomatic reasons for these sensations, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, that is something that when you're in this business, you, you know, you, you just learn how to deal with it because you, you are going to have people coming to you with, um, with questions about it. Barry, do you work with dermatologists ever? Um, not directly. Uh, I do. I, I work closely with the university hospital here um, with the diagnostic lab people. I've, I've done some training sessions with them because they they will, you know, somebody comes in with a tick bite and they, and they have the tick. The, the folks there have been trained to identify the, the ticks that occur in the local area because ticks are known to transmit a number of pretty nasty diseases to humans. It's kind of crucial to know what species has has bitten you just in case you start showing, you know, some symptoms. But if somebody's been traveling and they come back and and they've brought something back with them, then these folks don't know what it is and and that's where I get involved with them and try to, you know, try to pin it down.
1: You you were talking about some of your current research. What's uh what's the hot topic these days in parasite research? I I have to I have to confess it's not something that I'm really attuned to. It's, uh, <laughs> what's cutting well, edge I these just, days? You know,
3: I can I can tell you what we're working on right now. Yeah, what are you working on? (laughs) Um, We're working on, on house dust mites, which maybe you've heard of. House dust mites are quite fascinating because the medical connection, it was discovered back in the 1960s that people who are allergic to house dust uh, the vast majority of them actually turn out to be allergic to the mites that live in house dust, more so than to any of the other uh, components that are that are in there. And what we're doing is is we've actually uh, been able to show that the dust mites uh, have done something um, almost unique in their evolutionary history, uh, and that is they're they're not parasitic. I mean, they're they're living in our houses, in our beds. They they live. Uh, other species live in the nests of, of birds and mammals, and some of them even get in and infest uh, stored food products now, but that their ancestors were, were permanent parasites that, that lived on birds. Um, and this idea that, um, I mean, there's there's an, the, an old adage, you know, once a parasite, always a parasite, which implies that in the evolution of a parasitic association, uh, the parasite is basically giving up you know its ability to live anywhere but on that host okay mm-hmm. um, so its its host then completely becomes its habitat and you know it adapts to that habitat to the point where it really can 't live anywhere else and you know, certainly not going back to, you know, being, uh, you know, a non parasite and, and living a free living existence. But our work on the dust mites, and, and this has been done with, um, especially in, uh, uh, collaboration with, um, uh, my colleague Pavel Klimov, and we've been looking at, uh, DNA from the dust mites and, uh, a whole bunch of related mites, uh, both parasitic and non-parasitic mites. And our results, which uh, I'm actually going to present at an international conference here uh, next week in, in Brazil, fairly show that uh, the dust mites have evolved from an ancestor that was a uh, full-time uh, permanent parasite living on birds. The interesting thing, uh, there's a couple of really fascinating things that have come out of that, you know, with, with that Uh, evolutionary history and one is that the the group that the dust mites are related to uh, are usually called feather mites they they mostly live on the, the feathers of birds where they're they're really innocuous I mean they're parasites only in the sense really that they're living their entire life on the host and they can't generally live off the host but they're not really doing anything bad to it okay there's there's a you know a definitional problem here that that uh, most uh, parasitologists would define a parasite as as uh, you know something that not only you know lives on a host but actually uh, does damage to it and these phedomites are are not doing that they're they're not really eating the feathers Um, uh... some of them have moved on to the skin and those are really classic parasites where they're they're doing some damage there but the ones that live on feathers are innocuous at the worst and perhaps even beneficial in some cases because we know that they'll eat fungi and and perhaps uh, uh, bacteria and and other things that are potentially pathogenic to the the bird host uh, and you can get really big populations of these things living on a bird that you know that the bird doesn't care. I mean, they don't do anything uh, really to uh, uh, try to reduce the the, the the populations of of these feather-inhabiting mites. Anyway, but somewhere along the line, you know, one of these mites did develop the ability to um, to di- uh, digest uh, keratin, which is the the protein that makes up uh, feathers and hair and uh, uh, actually uh it's what uh, largely makes our skin uh waterproof because uh keratin builds up in our skin cells and then as they 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 die and they 're replaced from below, so we have this you know our, the outer layer of our skin you know what what peels off right when you have a sunburn uh, that's largely keratin and it's a it's a protective layer um, and uh keratin is is um a really interesting protein because it's a very strong protein it it has a lot of i mean uh, we can get into <laughs> into the chemistry here but basically it it's it's such a strong protein and that's what makes it great for making stuff like hair and feathers that that you know are are difficult to break down so if you think about it when an animal dies right and you know you 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 can watch the decomposition process. Uh, you know, what's the last to go, right? The last to go are sort of the bones and the hair or the feathers if it's a bird. Uh, because they're the most indigestible and there are so few animals that are specialized or even microbes that, that are specialized to digest that uh, that material. Well, somehow, again, one of these, mite these ancestors, evolved the ability to digest keratin. And we have species that now, believe it or not, live uh, inside the feathers, okay? Feathers are hollow, at least the bottom part of the feathers uh, on the inside and in um, uh... there's a couple of species that are known from parrots and we've uh... discovered oh quite a number of new ones um, that are living in both uh, parrots and in woodpeckers Um they're related ones living in hummingbirds on the inside of their feathers and uh... these are clearly eating the feather material from the inside i mean they're they're not Eating through it and destroying the feather because that would not be productive, right? It would it would uh, you know cause damage, you know, too much damage to the host. But if you think about a uh, mite that that can eat keratin and you know and has to disperse by coming out of the feather and and you know getting onto uh, another bird, well, the opportunities for that are well sort of from parent to nestling. Okay, if you're in the nest, you can do it that way, or or when adult birds are, are mating. I mean that's a relatively brief encounter, but um so mostly probably this, this uh uh transfer is occurring in the nests. And so if one of these, you know, mites, let's just say, that can eat keratin, uh is in the process of moving from bird to bird and it and it falls off, okay, well that's that's a bad thing generally speaking. Uh, because mostly, um, you're, you know, if you're a feather mite and you really need to live on the feathers and eat feather oil and and you know microbes and things like that, you're not going to find that down in the nest, right? But if you're a keratin eating mite, uh, what you do if you fall down into the nest um, is find yourself surrounded with food, okay? Uh, if you've ever looked inside a bird nest after the the young birds have grown up and, and left, there's all this white, fluffy, dusty material down in there, and all that is pure keratin. And that comes because when uh, baby birds grow out their new feathers, uh, they're surrounded by what's called a feather sheath, and that feather sheath is made out of keratin. And it just sort of sloughs off as the feather grows out and kind of builds up in the nest. And so you're a keratin-eating mite, you fall into the nest, and... Uh, uh... you don't have a problem with food okay so as long as you're able to survive now the the um, oh, temperature changes and humidity changes uh... and you're able to get back on a bird when it's time to disperse um, well you've, you've set yourself up for possibly a completely new lifestyle and that's been rather successful because there, there are quite a number of species in this group now that are living in nests. Several of those have have gotten into human habitations right? and they live in our homes and uh, they're eating the same sort of stuff. I mean, they're eating our dead skin for the most part. Um, you know, they can eat other things. They can eat uh, fungi and they can eat, again, some of them have gotten into stored food products, uh, grains and the like. But uh, they're still kind of doing what their ancestors did. And, um, you know, to me, the most, the most fascinating aspect of this whole death mite evolution uh, and the connection to the medical problems caused by death mites is that uh, the allergists have actually identified Oh, well over 20 different allergens, different proteins that come from dust mites that people can be allergic to. But the one allergen that the majority of people are allergic to and the one that causes the most problems, it's the same one. And, and so people were wondering what this was, okay? And um, the early studies actually found that this particular allergen was concentrated uh, not in the mites' bodies, uh, but in the mite feces, okay? So it's coming out the back end of the mite as they're feeding. And um, it was suspected that this allergen, uh, what they, well, it was, it's a protein because that's what allergens are, and the protein, uh, when uh, mites and, and insects eat solid food like, like these mites are doing, uh, and the food is going in their gut, uh, the the first part of their gut is lined with cuticle, so it, it's not, you know, it's not damaged when the food goes through it. But when it gets into the part where it's going to be digested, it can do damage to the lining of of the of the gut, right? And so, uh, the the um, the mite secretes what's called a peritrophic membrane, uh, which is a a little a soft protein coat that goes over the food uh, as it passes into the um, the mid gut where where digestion will occur. Um, and then it's taken into the gut cells um, for actual digestion. So people thought, oh, that's the obvious thing. Okay, it's it's it, it's going to be a you know the allergen will be this membrane that's going to be left over. Again, it's going to stay with the food as it goes through the gut, and any waste material that isn't digested will you know will will pass out as uh, fecal material, and it'll be surrounded by this stuff. Well, when they actually looked at the structure of you know, they were, people have actually uh, determined what the structure of the the antigen is, and it isn't a paratropic membrane protein. Uh, it's the enzyme that digests keratin. Ah. Yeah. So we have we have gone full circle here. Okay. So mm-hmm. we have we've gone back to the ancestors who lived on birds that evolved the ability to eat keratin, all the way through the the um, uh, shift from a parasitic to a non-parasitic lifestyle. Uh, to causing problems again, you know, to to the humans at least, uh, because of the very enzyme uh, that allowed them to make this transition in the first place.
2: That's that's really interesting. So so the enzyme that lets them digest the keratin ends up being a problem for the people who cohabitate with their environment. Right. Okay. Exactly. that's, that's, that's really amazing. So now we just need right. to ev- evolve uh, not having those reactions.
3: <laughs> right <laughs> you know and and in the in the meantime we we just wrap our mattresses up with you know with with uh, plastic, and my my son had a bad dust mite allergy, so we had to do that when he was growing up uh, is there
2: Is there a distinction between people who study parasites and those who study how to destroy them
3: i mean, it, it's all it, it's, it's all part of of you know the the big field of of parasitology you know we there there are certainly many different. Emphases. You know, there, there are people like me who who really get excited about working out the evolutionary histories of of parasites and and their hosts. Uh, there are people who are more ecologically oriented that that get. Uh, excited about um, you know what is it that the parasite is doing when it is living on or in the body of of this host I mean what is the the essence of the interaction? I mean there are folks who look at this um, at at the molecular level you know what what kinds of of chemicals are being produced uh, that uh... that cause reactions or or don't cause reactions in in um, uh... or or prevent a reaction in uh... in the host and you know that that's all really basic science there and and when you get into the uh... Um, into the more applied ends of things uh... you know the 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 medical side of things where where the uh... Um, uh... the focus is is on uh... you know treatment and and prevention so you still need to know some of these other things you know if you if you want to know how to not get a particular parasite, uh, you need to know something about its life cycle, where it lives, you know, how it moves, um, you know, through uh, or potentially moves through different hosts. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, then I suppose there there are folks who's, you know, who get paid to go out and kill mosquitoes, you know, <laughs> and and that's a good thing too.
0: Well, just a final question we like to ask our guests. What's your favorite monster?
3: Yeah, my favorite monster. Oh, my uh well let me let me tell you about a movie I saw a very, very long time ago. <laughs> it was a wonderful old Mexican horror movie made I think, back in the in the fifties or sixties called the black scorpion and um, you know it actually featured some some rather gigantic arachnids um, you know the The title character was was this train sized scorpion um, and and you know the the um, folks who made the movie. Um, did a pretty good job with it. I mean, it really did look kind of like a scorpion, uh, you know, it had its tail and a sting and on big pinchers and all of that. And, you know, it, it didn't have the right mouth parts for a scorpion, you know, it more had beetle mouth parts, but, you know, I'll give them that. But my favorite part of the entire movie is, is when uh, this, this young boy, who is one of the heroes of the story, uh, actually falls down this hole, okay? Uh, he's trying to escape something, and he falls in this hole, and he's menaced by this giant mite, okay? And the mite is actually pretty well done. I mean, I can even identify what family it belongs to. Uh, it's a group of predatory mites that... Has uh, very large um, what we call raptorial uh, appendages uh, around its mouthparts that they used to grab prey with, um, and uh, you know he 's having to dodge the the uh, attacks of, of of this mite and I thought um, you know that was pretty cool to actually bring a giant mite into a, a monster movie. <laughs>
2: Actually, I was watching that with my daughter about a month ago. Oh, yeah, really? She's only four. Oh. She was, she said, it was she, she said it was too slow for her. She wanted her to watch that little more action. But, I, yeah, that, oh, had, wow. uh, yeah, that was, uh, had special effects. I was
0: going to joke that you'd seen it, Like yo, absolutely. I've
2: got it. Yeah, yeah. It's got it's oh, yeah, special that? effects by Willis O'Brien. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so there you go. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today.
1: Oh, well, no problem. Okay.
2: Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to Monster Talk. Today, we've been learning about mites and lice and the role they play in monster folklore, as well as the science behind their life cycle. We interviewed Dr. Barry O'Connor, an acarologist and evolutionary parasitologist. Your hosts were Blake Smith, Dr. Karen Stolzno, and Benjamin Radford. If you'd like to comment on the show, please come visit the Skeptic Forum. At skepticforum.com. If you'd like to help out Monster Talk, please give us a review on iTunes. It's fast, free, and helps us get the show out to more listeners. Monster Talk is produced with the support of Skeptic Magazine. Visit them at skeptic.com. Music from the intro was from composer David Beard. The Monster Talk theme is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. All music is used with permission. The views expressed on Monster Talk do not necessarily reflect those of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. For more skepticism, want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit skeptic.com today. Uh, did you hear about the geneticist parasitologist with Tourette syndrome? No. He developed a tick.